The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Howdy, friends. This is the second episode about cerebellar ataxia. As in last episode, we're going to focus on ataxia caused by stroke or TBI when those events injure the cerebellum. We continue on with the same three guests. Stephen Heim is a stroke survivor. His stroke hit the cerebellum and he has cerebellar ataxia. And you might remember that prior to his stroke, he was an intensive care unit nurse. Also returning are our two physical therapists, Meredith Drake and Jennifer Miller. Meredith and Jennifer work at the Johns Hopkins Ataxia Center in Baltimore, Maryland. And they'll help us navigate this rich and complex pathology. The Hopkins Ataxia Center is the part of Johns Hopkins Hospital that is dedicated to this sequela. This is going to be another great episode from three great guests. Even as simple as cracking an egg, I cannot do it one-handed. I can't do it two-handed anymore. Uh, so I got on Amazon. If you put in one-handed, a whole list of items comes up. And I got an egg cracker that I can put the egg in and crack it with one hand. It's a device. A lot of people, including some very close to me, have said, oh, that's just lazy. Like I use a Google Home uh, so I can control my lights and or set an alarm with just using my voice. And, you know, I hear, oh, get up and turn your lamps off or turn your light off. Well, that is not easy for me to do. And I'm not being lazy. I'm, I'm being efficient. And that is how I have structured everything from the bathroom, uh, from the driving efficiency. When we talked before, Stephen, you were talking about some sort of weighted vest that you were using. What's up? I went for an assessment for balance weighted torso training. And it's at best, you weight it on different sides based on if you're off balance. I tend to lose my balance 
leaning towards my left side. So the weights, which are very light, go on your right side and the clinician does a PT and that influences your somatosensory system. And I have not ordered one yet. I did feel more stable. And what they do, they had me do some sit to stands and I improved the timing from the first time without the vest. 16 seconds after the vest was won. So, it, you know, it might be useful. It did help me some. I don't think it's a miracle cure. Yeah, the balanced torso weighted vest is developed by Cindy Horn. She's a neuro PT out in California. And it was kind of evolved from theories from decades ago of if you add weights, can that give your body different sensory inputs or counteract where you're as you said, which planes and movements are hard for you to deal with an external perturbation. And in some people, it has miraculous results. We see like you in your situation, you really responded amazingly well. Um, Not everybody gets that response. So it's, it's kind of remarkable how that added feedback. We don't really truly know why the vest works, but Sometimes in therapy, we're all about do whatever works. (laughs) So, but as Meredith said, you know, torso weighting can be helpful. Unlike limb weighting, we find that the inertial forces could almost be counterproductive. And it's been proven actually that using weights on your limbs do not work. That's been proven to not be an effective therapy. But this torso weighting vest, it's, it's encouraging and more research is needed. It's worth trying, you know, keep your expectations low. It doesn't work for everyone. But in some people like you, Stephen, have a really great response. I did actually talk to Cindy and we talked for a while on the phone. And she said, normally people with ataxia, their static balance is better. So that's all her research has shown so far. But there needs to be, as you said, more studies done. I think what makes that hard, too, is that different parts of the cerebellum do different things. So not all people with a cerebellar stroke are going to look the same. So that it's a very heterogeneous population. It's very hard to say, like, this worked for me, like, balance vest works for you. There's a listener right now who has cerebellar ataxia and they want to try a weighted vest and it doesn't work for them. That happens pretty often. It can be very different experience depending on where the injury was. If for those who are interested in learning more about the vest, um, Cindy's website is motiontherapeutics.com. And on the website, there's a list of therapists who are balance wear certified that can help out with a screen to see if the vest would be helpful. Just right before you said motiontherapeutics.com, I had found the first hit when you put in weighted vest and ataxia. And so she's got the top billing. That's the one I put into the show notes. So you'll be able to see it there. Well, no better feedback than to hear Stephen's response in terms of, you know, (laughs) that's great to know that it worked for you, Stephen. It's uh, yeah, it's a nice resource. And now she has a lighter weight version. It's called the breeze where it's kind of like Under Armour shirt material. So you can wear it under your shirt and nobody really would know you're wearing it. She made that in response to people that were complaining the original version was really hot to wear during the summer. So people seem to like the new version. I'm going to have to check that one out. Stephen, you did mention that you are driving. Yes. The the idea that you have dysmetria, it has nothing to do with being able to see the distance. It has to do with being able to track the distance. Right. 
when you're driving, you're not hitting people. <laughs> no, I'm very careful not to do that or I don't want to do that. Let's say a way that I compensate because it can translate to your driving because I've known at first when I was going through the driving rehab, I would get way close or not stop soon enough. It was like very jerky. I would push the brake, but I, I saw that I wasn't going to stop. So I would slam on it. And then everyone in the cars would get whiplash. So the way I compensated was I give myself more room between the vehicle in front of me. And then I start applying the brake and I kind of apply it harder um, so that I have slowed way down to a crawl when I get up to the vehicle so I can better judge the distance. So that's how I, I adapted and compensated but i did notice that translating into my driving skill i don't think maybe to some people it doesn't but to me it did but the more i've driven better i've, I've become it's that repetition i guess i've been driving about two years i'm way way better than when i first started and it just took getting out there and doing it it didn't hurt that I had to pick up my kids from school three days a week and they always want to go do something. So I have to take them. And so I'm driving all the time and the doctor's appointments and therapy pretty much every day I'm driving. And that is stuff I still concentrate on, even though it's gotten better. And, you know, I can listen to the radio or to a podcast when I drive. It, it is hard to carry on a conversation, but I can listen to to someone talk, which my kids do. That's kind of hard to tell children not to talk. Exactly. I have a couple questions about the yeah. driving. Yeah, sure. One question is, do you use any vehicle modifications? I do. I use a, um, a spinner knob. Uh, so I, I can't really turn effectively with my right hand. So when I turn, I can I use the spinner knob. I have a blinker extension, so I can use it with my left hand. And I have a gas pedal extension because I had a little bit of drop, but I don't have it so much anymore on my right foot. And so I put the gas pedal up even with the brake pedal so I could just pivot over. I don't use hand controls. I drive with my right foot. Um, and then I have uh, what's called a um, link seat base. So it actually comes out of the car and goes down so I can transfer from my wheelchair directly over. And then it lifts me back up into the car. And then I have a speedy, speedy lift for my wheelchair. And so it lifts the wheelchair into the car. So it's really opened up tons of doors for me. Equipment is very expensive, but the Texas Workforce Commission installed that at their costs so that hopefully one day I can go back to work. That's good news. Yeah. Can you also talk a little bit about the driver rehab experience? I know we've heard from some OTs on the podcast about the OT end of it, but I would love to hear your experience. Uh, yeah, sure. What happened was the occupational therapist came to my house and I had to take some tests and watch some videos to demonstrate that I would be safe. And then what we did was she got in the driver's seat and she had um, her own brake over there. I like to call it a chicken brake. Um, and then we were in a van. And so she had several spinner knobs so I could pick a location. And then she assessed my driving and we went all over 
try different situations like backing and parallel parking and being on a steep hill and going, pulling out into traffic, you know, what every situation you would be, you would have to encounter while driving. We did that for about three days. And then on the fourth day, we took a driver's actual driver's test. She was not in the car with me. I did it by myself with a DPS officer and I had to do that and pass it in order to get my license. So I didn't pass on the first try. I actually hit the curb backing up on parallel parking. So I failed right away. And then she came back. We went through two days of practice this time. And she brought a different vehicle. And it worked better. It had like a backup camera. And she could show me landmarks, when to start turning or when to stop based on the backup camera. So that really helped me. And so the second time, I passed. All right. Second time's a charm. Yeah, they say third time, but second time for me. So when you say you went out driving, how yes. long was the time frame? Um, it was about eight hours every day. Wow. It was a long day. That sounds exhausting. It, I, it was. I was tired. And mm-hmm. that was two years post-stroke that I started this. And I was still struggling with that, you know, being tired at the end of the day. Like exhausted. Like I went home, went laid down, and I don't think I got up until the next morning. I was that tired. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I have another question about it. Sure. You said that the therapist came out to the house and she gave you some tests and had you watch some videos. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, it was primarily videos where you would have to say, you know, this car is driving down the road, you know, what is wrong in this picture? And it would be like um, some kids bouncing a ball and the ball rolls into the street and a kid rolls after it. You know, what do you do? It would be like, you know, there's someone walking or waiting at the corner. They're turning on, you know, what do you do? Um, you're driving and a car gets up to close behind you kind of rule based uh, what would you do based on the rules of driving but you know what would any sane person do in this situation i think partly it's to see can i follow rules but partly it's to also see you know whether i am for lack of a better term crazy it sounds like uh, cognition to me yeah and insight and things like that it does i and that's interesting you mentioned cognition because during my my rehab as part of it, the day program I went to, I saw a neuropsychologist and several neuropsychology students. And they would always tell me, you don't have a cognitive problem. And, you know, I didn't have one based on, I, I wasn't lacking knowledge, I could remember stuff. But, you know, I think my higher executive functioning was off. Like, I couldn't make a plan or a goal. I, I still struggle with that today. I have to make lists. You know, just simple act of writing something down helps me to remember it. But if I say, if I think about something, you know, I can get up and go somewhere else. And I've already forgotten about that, which might be old age too. <laughs> but, um, you know, my executive functioning was a little off. And work finding, I really struggled 
struggled with that early on, and I still do. And I don't know if I compensate or what, um, because I know I'm always trying to think of what is the simplest way I can explain this. And I know early on, I wouldn't explain things because it would just take too long and it would exhaust me too much from talking and thinking. Um, I just would tell them, they'll have to Google this. I don't know. So, but it's interesting you mentioned cognition because I ha- I think I have struggled struggled with that. I've heard a lot of survivors <laughs> say that to me, despite being told that they don't have cognitive deficits. Um, yeah. Their thinking is a little slower. You know, it's just, it feels off. That that's how they report it to me that it feels off. You know, I use um, Dragon software for my school. And like I know when they demonstrated, the people demonstrated by just talking and they're clear and they say the right words and they go from thought to thought. But I cannot, I can get one thought and then I have to stop and think of the next thought. So it's very fragmented. And when I first started using it, it would not even understand my speech. So there's no telling what it would write. Some stuff had me laughing hysterically because it was not anything near what I said. But it is better now and my voice has gotten better over the years. You know, it's still fragmented. I cannot just go from thought to thought. I don't know if there's dysmetria of thought, but I have it, whatever this is. Yes. So the Dragon software is dictation software, correct? Right, correct. And you can really, I haven't learned all the ins and outs. I just started using it about six months ago. Um, I used to hunt heck on my keyboard with this one left finger. That was slow. Uh, but you can um, control your whole computer with this. But I can use a mouse. I, I um, Even with my left hand, I kind of go past it, the target, and, you know, below it. Um, I don't hit on it the first time, but it's very quick. So I use a mouse and that, and it's been pretty good. Are there any other technologies at Hopkins or anywhere else that the therapists know about that might be interesting to Stephen going forward? As far as just daily strategies for making your life easier at home, it's our colleagues, Jessica and Marlena, gave a talk at the National Ataxia Foundation annual meeting last year on just basic home tips and tricks to make your life easier. And their lecture is posted on the ataxia.org website under educational seminars. Be a great, it's like an hour long lecture on you that you can watch via YouTube. And it just has a treasure trove of ideas to just make your life easier in the kitchen, the bathroom, just home setup in general. Um, I, I would encourage you to tap into that um, resource. The Ataxia Foundation also has on that same page, they have a whole bunch of other lectures from that conference, including some adaptive recreation ideas. There's a lecture on speech type strategies, speech swelling. There also is a link to um, support groups for people that are either virtual or in person. So it's nice to be able to connect with other people living with ataxia and share your experiences with other people that, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Um, And again, the ataxia.org website has a link to the support groups throughout the whole country. So I I highly encourage you to check that out. (laughs) We'll put it in the show notes. Thanks. 
Hey guys, I just wanted to step in here real quick to tell you about a continuing education course on spasticity that I'm doing. It's live virtually November 17th from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And that's Eastern time zone in the U.S. You can sign up for it by finding your way over to the fine folks at Motivation CEU, motivationsceu.com. There's no spaces in there. Once you get on the website, find the search window and just type Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. If you search Levine, four courses will come up. One is on spasticity, and that's the one November 17th from 8 to 10 p.m. Then there's a three-part series that I'm doing on stroke recovery, and it'll have the dates for those as well. All these courses are done live initially, but if you can't make it, you can sign up for any of these courses and watch them whenever you want. The one on spasticity in November, I'll be talking about the same kinds of stuff that I talked about on the spasticity episode on this podcast, but there's going to be images and videos, and it's going to be geared a little bit more towards clinicians, so there'll be a little bit more complexity, a little bit more depth, and a little bit more nomenclature. There'll also be some hands-on stuff, as much as you can do hands-on stuff virtually. And if you get to the live presentations, there'll be plenty of time to ask questions. But hey, it's going to be fun, and I hope to see you there, motivationceu.com. Thanks. I do kind of want to touch on cognition a little um, because we just had a really interesting conversation in the the non-invasive brain stimulation group about cognition after stroke and how this is kind of criminally missed and under addressed after a stroke. Um, So you have to think about in the neuropsych testing that you underwent, you're sitting in a quiet office, just you're sitting, right? You're not even having to worry about standing and walking or maneuvering the environment. You're sitting in a perfectly quiet room, just two people, no distractions. But in the real world, you're thinking about your grocery list. You're trying to cross the street. You're watching the light. You're talking to somebody. You're trying to maneuver your wheelchair around the curb. You're trying, you're not even dual tasking. You're quadruple tasking. And we're not, there's some, been some really interesting studies that have come out that are not specific to cerebellar stroke, but to stroke in general, that have found that we will test people in the clinic and we'll find that their gait speed is community level, right? But then whenever we put wearable trackers on these people, they're not actually moving at a community level whenever they leave therapy. And so there is this whole thought that we need to start then assessing dual tasking. But even then, when I'm assessing dual tasking in the clinic, you're in a quiet clinic hallway, right? Perfectly smooth floors, perfectly smooth walls, no distractions. And I'm just having you count backwards from 100 by threes. And that's not real world practice. And there's actually been some really interesting studies showing that even whenever we're trying to assess this impact of cognition and mobility at the same time that we're not even capturing it accurately. Um, And it's something that one of our researchers, um, Kendra Cherry Allen, actually just said that she was submitting a grant to try to start studying this a little bit more. 
but you have to think about like, sure, you're, you did wonderful in the neuropsych testing. So you're cognitively intact, but whenever you're having to focus so much on your mobility, because you've lost that automaticity of movement because of the damage to the cerebellum, it's very taxing on all of your faculties, both physical and mental. And so something tends to suffer. Um, like even whenever I'm doing just my quiet hallway dual tasking assessment, I will have somebody stand up and they can walk just fine up and down the hallway and I can have them sit in a chair and they can count backwards from a hundred by sevens, no problem. But as soon as they stand up and they try to walk and count at the same time, they crash right into the wall because it's just too hard to focus on both at the same time. Give yourself some credit, right? Like give yourself some credit. You are cognitively intact probably. It's just too hard for you to manage all of your systems because you're having to manage them all intentionally. You've lost automaticity. It's a lot harder for you to do these things now. Will I ever get back? I mean, this is where, like I said, repetition. The hope is that if you just practice it, right? If you try to practice single task walking and um, trying to, I mean, there's a whole, there's different schools of thought on whether or not it's worth your while to try to do dual tasking um, whenever you have a cerebellar injury. Jen and I were talking about this the other day. With a cerebellar stroke, yeah, I would try it. If you've got a degenerative cerebellar ataxia, I don't really know. I feel like learning compensations is probably going to be more worth your time. But with a stroke, Again, there's always hope for neuroplasticity and neuro recovery. Um, and so in theory, if you practice it and give yourself lots and lots of repetition, um, that hopefully that would improve over time. Stephen, do you have an exercise program that you engage in? Um, I do not. Um, I do. I've started this thing through a gym, local gym. It's adaptive training. There's four people in the class and it's led by two staff at the gym. And I think they're used to working with adaptive people. And this is the first time I've met uh, younger people in that use wheelchairs more than I do. One has something wrong with her arm. So basically she's one-handed. So that, you know, I think I've seen that, uh, but I've never seen anyone else in a wheelchair. And that is probably partially because for a lot of years after my stroke, I pretty much stayed isolated. So, you know, I'm trying now to get back out into life and so I don't, I go Monday and Wednesday to that program and I don't have anything that I do at home and I am looking for something to do. Now, I do belong to a gym right down the street from where I live so I can go there and they have a pool, an indoor heated pool with a wheelchair lift. And so I know I have a pool outside and when the weather is warmer, about two years ago, I just gotten and walked back and forth. And that made a huge amount of difference. And the only reason I did it was because if I fell, it wouldn't hurt, you know? And I couldn't even make it to one end. I looked drunk. But as the summer went on, 
I was making it back and forth 40 times without holding on to anything. So I just progressed and progressed and progressed. And so now when I go back in there, which I have done not like I did as many times that first summer because life has just gotten the way. But, you know, I, I don't feel like I've lost any ability, but it did help. But, you know, I think what can I do at home? Because, you know, I'm from an occupational therapy side. I am really interested in what I should be doing because I'm finished with school next semester. But after that, I do want to go back to work at least part time. So what can I do from that standpoint? And what can I do from my home exercise standpoint to help my balance and, you know, safe stuff because I don't have anyone to, you know, that I'm there with. So, you know, safe, but effective. Have you worked with the neurophysical therapist recently? I, I have not. There are none in this area. So I have not. Uh, I, I'm going to change insurances just so I can or look for one in January. I don't care where I have to travel to. Hey, maybe I'll come to John Hopkins. You like Baltimore? Uh, I've never been. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, they flood every once in a while, I hear. But well, uh, just as long as they don't you're, flood. You're good in there. water, though. You can handle the water, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah water's no problem. Yeah, I, I like your idea of trying to find a local neurophysical therapist that can really work with you to, you know, you can go to the therapist and express your goals and what's most meaningful to you, what you want to work on the most. And then they would do a formal evaluation and kind of just get some baseline idea of how you're doing and can use that, those measures to give you feedback after you've had a chance to practice exercises at home that hopefully that feedback would give you incentive to keep going with your exercises. Yeah. And we did create an exercise video to the ataxia center, which again is, is very general. So really best that you do work on one-on-one with the therapist and the clinic to figure out the program that would be right for you. Glad you got that on your list. Um, and it is hard to find a therapist that even has heard, you know, is that it's familiar with dealing with ataxia symptoms. And um, the American Physical Therapy Association does have find a PT link where people have paid their annual dues and they have their name put on the website. It is a is a starting point too to try to identify a neurocertified, you know, clinical specialist. So um, there's a movement disorder clinic at UT Southwestern in Dallas. So I did get a referral from my neurologist there. They don't take my current insurance, but I'm going to change. And then in January, I'm going to go. And I think there are physical therapists that work with them. Wonderful. Neurophysical therapists. And since COVID, one good thing that's come out of it is we have more opportunities to do virtual visits. So you could be seen by the therapist in person for your evaluation, but then they could follow up with you virtually. I know in Maryland, we're a little like in many states, we were first given flexibility to help people across state lines. But now that we're getting back to more life as it was. Meredith and I, we have uh, board certifications in Maryland, so we can't treat across state lines, which is a, a bummer. Anyway, but at least I bet in Texas, you could be evaluated by someone in the clinic and then they could follow up with you virtually so you can help address that distance barrier. <laughs> 
and then go back to the clinic periodically for your reassessments yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I think it would be good to get some in-clinic time to get like a good home program going. But the good thing about that study that Jen mentioned earlier about the challenging balance exercises and how they kind of carry over to walking is that study was actually a home exercise program study. So that wasn't in the clinic. That was actually them doing a home exercise program, even just seated balance, and it would carry over to improved walking. So it's it's a good thing in ataxia that you if you challenge yourself, you can with a good home program, you can actually see improvements without having to actually go to therapy. One of the other studies that of the few that are out there, and it was in degenerative ataxia. So it was kind of encouraging because people had improved their clinical neurological scores significantly equivalent to, you know, it's in the natural history data and some of these degenerative cerebellar ataxias say that people will show clinical neurological deterioration at a certain rate per year. And the outcomes in these um, exercise studies that were showing people were improving three times more than what one would see as far as deterioration per year. So they were gaining or giving back years of their life by exercising regularly. So, and again, when you're dealing with the stroke, with this is a one-time thing, that's even more encouraging <laughs> that um, just keeping, keeping at it. And it's a lifetime commitment. It's, uh, you know, your brain always has the ability to learn. Those neurons just have to be fired up in the right way. I tell people to, to not be too hard on yourself whenever you fall off of your exercises, because we all do, right? Like I do this for a living and I fall off of going to the gym for months at a time. That's just the way life is. I think like when you start to, I don't want to say fail, but whenever you you do kind of fail is whenever you just get so down on yourself for not going that you just say, why even bother? Like it's just be patient with yourself and say, all right, I've been slacking off time to get back to it and accept that there's it's going to ebb and flow. That's just the way life is. Nobody's perfect at it all the time. Um, and that's where get, giving yourself opportunities to have feedback can be really helpful, whether it's tracking your steps per day through like your phone, it has the iPhones and probably the droids have built-in step trackers or an Apple watch has little activity monitors um, um, or getting feedback through the help of the therapist too, as to are you on track? Are you, that's, that can be really helpful to keep up with the program. And another thing, um, it's good to kind of give yourself, you know, permission to adjust your expectations and start with super small goals, you know, assess what you can do now and then maybe make goals you know, maybe you're walking however many steps per day, and then just make a goal of increasing that distance by 10% over the next couple of weeks and just kind of build from there. It's a mental challenge, modifying your expectations, giving yourself mental permission to do things slightly differently than you always done them. So you can get things done that you want to, but in a safe way, that's all part of managing this over the long haul. But the stroke, that's not a degenerative thing. You're, it's a one-time thing. But in those with degenerative ataxias, it's not like ataxia is a life-shortening condition. Um, but what is life-shortening is a devastating fall. And that's where exercise in combination with implementing safe strategies in combination with setting your environment up for you to be successful is absolutely essential for managing this over the long haul.
So uh, kids, uh, you can donate to Nuggets and Neurons. There's a QR code on the Podbean website. You can just scan it. And also there's a Venmo that you can do it. It's at Neurons is our address or whatever you call it. And, and thank you to all of you who have been donating. We yes, appreciate it. It's very nice. And remember, 20% goes to the Brain Injury Association of America. Brain Injury Association of America. <laughs> Um, 20% of it goes to that if you if you donate a little bit and it has to be a lot be a little bit in some ways it's like just showing in a, a little bit of appreciation if you're getting something out of it yeah and, and don't forget to join the Facebook group that'll be helpful too mm-hmm. and yeah so yeah good yeah it's good stuff Stephen, you've done a lot of great things. Get back doing what you want to do. Well, you know, um, one thing I have done is I've taken all the processes, even as simple as cracking an egg. I cannot do it one-handed. I can't do it two-handed anymore. Uh, So I got on Amazon. If you put in one-handed, a whole list of items comes up. And I got an egg cracker. That I can put the egg in and crack it with one hand. It's a device. A lot of people, including some very close to me, have said, oh, that's just lazy. Like I use a Google Home uh, so I can control my lights and or set an alarm with just using my voice. And, you know, I hear, oh, get up and turn your lamps off or turn your light off. Well, that is not easy for me to do. And I'm not being lazy. I'm, I'm being efficient. And that is how I have structured everything from the bathroom, uh, from the driving efficiency. Like I say, okay, I need I need a, a, something to hold a drink or a water bottle on my left side. So what can I put on the door? Well, I've tried many different things. Nothing worked. But I noticed that maybe a stroller water bottle holder will clamp onto my door handle. So I ordered one of those. So we'll see if it works. I'm using everyday stuff to make my life a little bit easier. And, you know. Hey, you're doing what makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. One of my patients said the best birthday gift from her husband was the Roomba vacuum. She just, it was, that was the best gift ever. But like you said, those automatic lights, motion sensor lights can be really handy, especially if you're getting up to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's like a safety thing. If that type of technology exists, might as well tap into it. Um, Steven, you would be be great for one of the support groups through the National Ataxia Foundation to be able to share the tips and tricks that have worked for you. It'd be nice for you to join one of these support groups, the National Ataxia Foundation. People would love to hear what works for you. You'd be good. And, you know, I think I have a background in, I'm a um, nurse. And so um, I think having some of the knowledge that I do has kind of helped me along dealing with these different situations. Yeah, in life and to, pro- to problem more efficient. Yeah. 
And that's what I feel like I do every day. Problem solving. Yeah, every yeah, that's great. It's for you moving and navigating the mathematical equation a little bit, and it's a constant. Like you are constantly making decisions with every situation in front of you. What makes sense in this moment? What is? (laughs) What do I need to do to be safe, but yet get the task done? And it's again giving yourself mental permission to do things with slight modifications is. It sounds like you figured it out. I think um, also one thing we did in nursing a lot was after a situation, we would sometimes it was if it was a critical or disastrous situation, we would do a debrief. And so I kind of do one of those for myself. If everything doesn't go as planned, I say, okay, what can make this better? I think I love the debrief and the exploration and the research of what might make this better as much as I like the problem solving. So I I think that is one important thing I've taken from the field I'm in. Well, well, I know I have learned a lot this evening. Um, And I know people probably want to, I don't know, see their families or get something to eat or um, so what are, uh, do we have any good last thoughts? Uh, Maybe your best thought for the end um, that you want to add, by the way, I I put um, one handed into Amazon and yeah, including the egg crack. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think Steven, you just kind of had a really great last thought is kind of your, you've kind of lived the motto of setting yourself up for success. Um, And that's the bottom line. And, um, you know, in terms of just problem solving um, and, and, and if, if things don't go well, figuring out what was, what didn't go well and just uh, learn from that. That's huge. And then, and then of course, Meredith and I will hope that you um, and others will feel encouraged to keep moving, exercising, don't stop moving. Um, There's a movie that came out a few years ago by it's called the ataxian done by two guys that are living with friedrich's ataxia which is a neurodegenerative condition but it is an extremely inspiring movie and it'd be something that you might enjoy looking at they did a race across america on bike to raise money and awareness for uh, friedrich's ataxia some of the challenges that they face every day it's it's really cool to see how they've kind of meeting those challenges and and using what wasn't, you know, something they were expected to have to deal with in their life, but turning that experience into something good is it's really cool. So it'll go in the show notes. I think I would tell everyone something that I've really learned about myself is know yourself and know your limits. Like like um, Jennifer said, set yourself up for success. If it takes more time, if you need something like an assistive device to help you in the kitchen or around the house or anything, know yourself, know what you need, and don't be afraid to use that. So, uh, I think a lot of people can be stuck on the way they've always done certain things and feel like they're they're giving into their condition by doing things with modifications. But really, no, it's, it's doing what makes sense for you to be successful and safe and it is okay to do things roundabout ways, whether it's taking your time or, as you said, you know, using a device to get to accomplish what you're trying to do. Okay. Jennifer Miller, Meredith Drake, Stephen Heim, thanks so much. Thank you so much for inviting us. This has been so fun and it's been a treat to talk to all of you and, and help get the word out of the, of the benefits of rehab and, and just 
yeah, share ideas. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think Stephen, you weren't on the call yet. Whenever we kind of gave the stat earlier, but cerebellar strokes are two percent of all strokes. Yeah, and and one thing that I hear from my patients who have had cerebellar strokes is how lonely it is because it's so rare. Like you know, they go to ataxia support groups, but it's not the same. You know, people don't really know what it's like to have a hemiparesis and ataxia at the same time. Um, and so I feel like you being doing things like this, like getting on a podcast and, you know, showing that you can live your life while having a cerebellar taxi is a really good um, example to set for people with your condition. What, um, what's, what classes are you taking again, Stephen? I am taking classes in um, nurse informatics and quality and safety. That, that's, uh, it has to do with medical stuff? Uh, yes, it does. Um, nursing, since I've been a nurse for 20 years, I didn't want to steer away from that, but I wanted to be able to use my knowledge in something that's more of a desk job. Okay, guys, you got to go eat something and have some fun and talk to your, I don't know, your spouses and your kids and, and all that, your sister. Thank you so much. Thank, yeah, thank, thank you guys, guys for having fun. us. And Deborah, I'm jealous that you're near Gertie's. That's like the best restaurant ever. <laughs> oh, Jennifer, I guess I'll have to go there. I haven't been. <laughs> I <Bye> know. <laughs> it's a sacrilege. Okay, I will. The best restaurant in Clarence, New York. <laughs> Okay. Hey, if there's anything else any of you guys need to go on the show notes, just email it to me. We'll put it up there and everybody will have access to it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Good night. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.